0: Hi, it's Joanna Oakey here and welcome back to the Deal Room Podcast, brought to you by the commercial legal practice, Aspect Legal. Welcome to part one of a fascinating two-part series with Mark Ostrin, the CEO of Strategic Transactions. Mark and his team track all of the reported mid-market merger and acquisition activity that occurs within Australia and produce an annual report called the Australian M&A Review. In this episode, we go through the key findings that are in this report and we close with an interesting discussion on the tricky subject of earnouts. So let's jump right in. Ladies and gentlemen, good evening. Are you-
1: Okay, here we go. You're listening to The Deal Room Podcast. Join us as we bring you the inside scoop on business sales and acquisitions.
0: Get across trends in the area
1: and hear the industry's best recount their real-life tips, traps, and experiences. Now, here's your host, Joanna Oki.
0: It's fabulous having you along today, Mark. So thanks so much for coming on and speaking to us today.
1: Thank you for having me.
0: Joanna, thank you for coming. Because look, we've we've had some fascinating discussions in the background prior to today, and look, I, I just want to say you, you produce a report. Called the Australian MA Review, or at least you did in 2000, and, uh, at the beginning of this year, 2017. And I must say, when I saw that report, I thought, gosh, this is really good information uh, for the industry. And so I'm really glad to have you on the show today because I, there's a lot that I'd like to talk about in relation to this report. And you clearly like developing content because I hear you're in the process of finalizing a book as well at the moment. Is that right?
1: That's right. Yeah. Yes, absolutely. absolutely.
0: And so what's the name for that, Mark? What should we look out for? Well,
1: it, it's all about selling uh, businesses that, uh, that buyers really want.
0: Okay, that sounds very
1: useful. And that's the emphasis that buyers really want.
0: Uh Uh-huh. Well, look, we will look out for that. And when will it hit the shelves, do you think?
1: Well, subject to me having a highly creative Christmas, I'm sort of hoping around about April, May next year.
0: Okay, we're looking out for it. But I guess until then, maybe if we can talk today then about this report that you have compiled and the key findings that are in this report. and and maybe if you can start there, what, what were the key outcomes?
1: All right. Well, we track, or well, my business, Strategic Transactions, tracks all of the mid-market mergers and acquisitions that occur within Australia. And we produce a main report every year, and then we produce quarterly updates for uh, three sectors, namely food and beverage, technology, and uh, health and cosmetic Very very interesting um, results that we get from it. Some of the results are quite consistent. Like for example, we note that there's around about 500 to 600 mid-market transactions that occur out of Australia every single year, and that number seems to stay consistent. It doesn't fluctuate very much. So if Mm. if anyone thinks that there's a boom in M&A or anything like that, it's just not true. So Mm. overall. Fairly, fairly standard, although we've noted across sectors there has been some fluctuations. For example, there's been a 50% increase this year in the sales of technology businesses. There's been a 30% um, increase in uh, the sales of uh, medical, toiletries and cosmetic businesses. And surprisingly enough, after a very, very good year last year, mid-market food and beverage businesses have actually declined this year compared to uh, the previous year. So some quite, quite interesting things going on um, in terms of that. So that's sort of looking on a, by, on a per industry basis. We also look at things like where are the buyers coming from and what's their motivation. Now, about 25% of acquisitions are made by overseas businesses. So that's 75% of businesses are still staying in Australia. Mm. And if we look at those um, businesses that are acquiring, nearly 70% of those overseas acquirers are from traditional developed markets like the USA, the UK, and Europe, mm-hmm. rather than the uh, emerging economies as economies of Asia.
0: Right. Okay. So so we don't have a, um, from what you can see, a, a massive influx of, you know, out of China. Although, you, you know, I've certainly anecdotally seen a bit of activity out of Japan. Yes. But that hasn't been enough to drive a bigger Asia market component. Is that right? nothing significant quite possibly yeah, right. in
1: the lower market there could be a lot of chinese uh, acquirers of small businesses particularly in relation to uh, the visa situation but mm. not but not in this uh, not in this segment of the market now i, I should add, actually add something else as well we're pretty active overseas as, re- as well mm. if we look at acquisitions we've actually made australians have actually made uh, 10% of their acquisitions have been overseas businesses.
0: Mm. Now,
1: again, that's fairly stable, but a lot of Australian entrepreneurs still maintain that uh, that international outlook and are still looking at selling their uh, their products and services overseas. And they're very, very innovative, particularly in the technology space.
0: Mm-hmm. Fascinating. Okay. Absolutely. All right. so, so, and I guess, you know, if we sit here and we have a think, okay, well, the implications are we've got 25% of our buyers coming, mm. you, you know, from offshore, then I guess there's a number of implications for us practically here in Australia. Yeah. If, if you're a business that's looking to sell to the widest possible market, obviously you need to set yourself up so that you're attractive to mm. an international buyer a, as well. And do, Will any of your findings talk about what elements international buyers are most interested in, or do we not delve that deep?
1: Okay no, no, we, we've got that as well, but but the first thing I want to do, Joanna, is actually uh, sort of exercise a, a fair amount of caution to uh, to both <laughs> businesses that are looking to sell and and are hopeful that that sale will fund you know a medium-sized business uh, owner's retirement. Looking at the Australian Bureau statistics, um, there's 51,000 Australian businesses that are employing between 20 and 200 people, and there's 2,000 exits a year. Now, I believe that about 600, 700 businesses are sold within this sector, which tells me that about twice as many, 1,400, 1,500, aren't sold.
0: Mm, wow, that's a really punchy statistic, isn't it? Absolutely. So- now let's let's get a bit more depressing, shall we? <laughs> <laughs> Mark, why not? Let's do it. <laughs> okay. Well, I like, I like to deliver
1: the bad news before I deliver the good news. Forty <laughs> percent of these business owners are more than sixty years old, and thirty uh-huh. percent are between fifty and sixty. Uh huh. Now.
0: And we're still talking mid-market here. This is still mid-market. We're still talking
1: mid-market. Mm. And we're also actually saying that because, I mean, these figures were compiled back in 2013. Mm. And that indicates to me that even since 2013, business owners, the average age of a business owner is getting older and older and older.
0: Mm.
1: And so something's telling me there's, there's a vast number of businesses that need to be sold aren't being sold at the moment and the owners of those businesses are, are staying on longer and longer and longer. And, and by the way, a lot of their children don't want their businesses. Mm. Only 41% of uh, businesses have actually some form of succession planning involved in them where the actual where the actual sons and daughters uh, want the businesses. And when business owners were interviewed, more than half said they actually had No form of plan for uh, developing their businesses prior to sale. Mm, Wow. It's quite fascinating, even in this mid-market arena.
0: That is fascinating, and you know, I, I guess for many, many years now we've been talking about this um, this wave of sales that will come, yeah. but we're yeah. saying well, it hasn't, it hasn't quite hit yet. Yeah. <laughs> so where is it coming, and what will happen? You know, is at it that ever going to hit? Yeah. Well,
1: my gut feel is, I mean, the, the, if I, if I look at it from the aspect of average sale price of a business. Alright and we typically talk of that in terms of multiples of uh, of profit now they have stayed fairly stable over the last few years mm-hmm. okay but i'm actually getting the feeling that those numbers are actually corroded by a large number of businesses that aren't being sold mm. and a small number of businesses that are getting higher and higher multiples mm. based on the uh, the intellectual Capital within them, mm. and that's really interesting. And again, I'm going to track this by sectors so, sorry, I, I love statistics, Joanna. So well, I'm, I can I'm quite tell. Happy to, I, <laughs> I
0: love <laughs> it qu- too. Well, I'm as lawyers, li- we're evidence-based, so you know oh, this okay. is this is feeding our. Uh, <laughs> and we have a lot of listeners that are accountants. I think they okay. like these statistics as well. <laughs>
1: okay. Well, look. The look. Looking at it from a statistical basis, the the, the sort of the El Dorado of a large-ish – private seller is where they're acquired by a public company. Mm. Okay. And I've been, we've been tracking the number of private businesses as a percentage of overall acquisitions that are acquired by uh, public companies. And now more than half of all uh, businesses with, with a value higher than 2 million, 51% mm. are acquired by public tech companies. And of medical and cosmetic companies are acquired by their public counterparts as well. And that is raising the value overall for all companies within the segment. It's raising the averages. Mm. But if you've got a small number that are raising the averages, then you're going to have a a larger number that are depressing the averages.
0: Mm, mm, Absolutely. (laughs) I see, I see. And then uh, do you have any statistics as well? Because we've not just got public companies buying up, but I I also see a bit of activity around at the moment in, you you know, roll-ups with an intention of IPO in in the future. So do do we have any statistics there that sort of add to public companies plus those that are looking to... uh, Roll up to become public.
1: Okay, nothing immediately quotable to you. Mm. I have noticed a number of things as well, but, uh, private e- uh, private equity activity within again technology and food. Mm. There's also a wonderful concept which uh, I think is hitting our shores now called agglomeration, where uh, you have a group of small companies, all of which offer something, being sold on a much much higher multiple to a public company. Mm. And it, but the you know the difference between that and say your traditional roll up is that it is that the actual power is coming from the small businesses themselves and their own IP and they're driving this rather than having the uh, the private equity person involved with them.
0: Mm. And when I'm hearing all of this, of course, my legal mind is going to here's a reason why organisations really need to be. Understanding the intellectual property and then protecting it moving forward, because we can see in the statistics that you're talking about today, Mark, mm. that IP is really showing itself as a critical component now. Absolutely. moving forward as well.
1: Mm. Now, as a lot as a non legal mind, I would <laughs> s- <laughs> I would say that the best way to maintain your edge in terms of IP is to actually keep building more and more and more IP and be a and a, assume that somehow your uh, your IP is going to be copied, or not necessarily copied, but is going to be emulated by somebody and say, okay, well, what's the next step? Mm. Funny enough, just just a few months ago, I, I came across the most fantastically innovative um, Australian company. They're called Shift Match, and they do—they've uh, got the IP around cloud-based. Staff rostering. Right. Okay. So the idea uh-huh. is that uh, if you take, for example, a nurse director or or or, or somebody like that who's sort of uh, responsible for the HR and making sure that in, that a hospital is is staffed, it takes up about ninety percent of the time just simply ringing up nurses and doctors and making sure that Rod and creating sh- uh, shift schedules and all that kind of stuff. Now. This company realized that this was going on. They did a lot of research amongst, amongst uh, nurses and doctors and talked about the issues that were related specifically to scheduling and designed a system that worked across smartphones that automatically facilitated auto rostering. Mm. And it's an absolutely phenomenal system and basically makes sure that the, the, the labor component behind it, and this is, is down by about 90% and, and people have more certainty about what they can and can't do. So they built this IP and then they said, okay, well, how do we continue building this IP? And it's, it's quarterly reviews amongst the users. And mm. then they say, okay, well, you know, what industry uses this apart from nurses and doctors? And they said, okay, well, you know, the school's. There's this childcare, there's manufacturing, there's construction, there's hospitality, there's retail, and they've gone and produced all these different products that probably differ slightly, that facilitate more to those markets. And then the, the great thing is they go to America and they say, we've solved the problem, here you are. Mm. And all of a sudden, they're a global business.
0: I love Absolutely it. Absolutely
1: fantastic.
0: I love it. I love it, although the lawyer in me would say, well, without <laughs> some, some sort of protection, <laughs> our lawyers are going to say, well, hold on, someone's going to jump on the back of this. and <laughs> No, no, on,
1: jo- Joanna, on the contrary, what you have is large <laughs> players, large players try to protect IP, and when large players pr- try to protect IP, I mean, um, that's where the fees come in, isn't it? I mean, wouldn't you like to be the lawyer in charge of
0: <laughs> the Apple and Samsung disputes? Oh, well, yeah. <laughs> Yeah, absolutely. Although you know, we don't love litigation. We love to I settle. <laughs> I know, I
1: know,
0: absolutely. <laughs> oh, look, this is good. I like a, um, I, I like a bit of a debate on some of these. <laughs> yes, <laughs> on some absolutely. of these issues, it keeps it lively, doesn't it? Oh, so- look, look,
1: absolutely,
0: <laughs> absolutely. <laughs> let's take a short break. When we get back, Mark explains the importance of understanding the strategic motive behind a purchase. And we save the best for last by wrapping up this episode with an interesting discussion on earnouts. And that's next. This is Joanna and you've been listening to The Deal Room, a podcast brought to you by Aspect Legal. or to discuss how we can work with your clients if you're an advisor in this space. So see our show notes on how to book a time to speak with us or head over to our website at aspectlegal.com.au. Or if it's easier, just shoot me an email at joanna at If you're interested in hearing smart legal tips for business, the Deal Room sister podcast, Talking Law, is perfect for you. These two podcasts are now among the top legal podcasts in Australia. In our Talking Law podcast, I dissect a different topic each week that I have seen impact businesses and I then provide actionable tips for you to avoid that risk or to use that legal area to your advantage. We release new episodes every 10 days and you can listen to our episodes through www.talkinglaw.com.au or subscribe to our Talking Law podcast on iTunes to be the first to know when a new episode is out. Now back to the show. Welcome back. Earlier, Mark walked us through some key statistical data for mergers and acquisitions in the mid-market arena. He also highlighted the importance of building an edge with technology and intellectual property. Let's keep the conversation going and listen as Mark explains the reasons why buyers buy and why it's important that businesses understand this key element. moving back to our report then, so obviously yes. we've identified that technology is an important element um, moving mm. forward. So it sounds like that's one of the findings mm. out of your review. What else what do you think that some of these findings maybe mean practically for organizations? Mm.
1: Okay. Look, this was a question that that really, really sort of got me to uh, got me to write down got me to write down my ideas in this book. (laughs) The great question that I think every seller has to be able to answer is the following, and this is a buyer's question: Explain what the value of your business is to me. Mm. All right, and it's the to me. That's the key part of that question, all right? If, I, if I'm if i trying to sell my business to you and I say, oh, look, you know, my profits are increasing every year, you know, a great business there, et cetera, et cetera, you'll say, well, yeah, okay, well, it's good that your profits are increasing at the moment because you're running it. But I don't know, what's going to happen when you leave and, you know, all your personal contacts go? And what's going to happen when half your staff leave because they don't want to work with 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 me rather than with you and, and mm. all those sorts of things that are the impact on the actual risk that relates behind the you know the the, the survival of the business mm. so you've really got a you've really a, a seller has really got to look at the major reasons why a buyer buys a business and they have to include those concepts not when the business is about to go to market two or three months beforehand, but, but maybe three, four, five years before the business is planning for sale. Mm. And that is absolutely integral. And the first thing you need to do is say, why do buyers buy businesses? Mm. Okay. Mm. Now I, I got an example for that, which I, which came from um, an acquisition uh, that, uh, that happened earlier this year. And I've and I, it sort of explains a lot of the motivations all within one acquisition.
0: Can I, can, I, can I talk you through this? I'd love to hear it. I'd love to hear it, Mark. Tell us all about it. Okay. Food industry,
1: freedom foods, the tagline is making food better and they produce uh, bakeries, uh, baker goods, cereals and, and snack foods. Now they go into the market and they buy – a business called Power Foods for twenty-one million dollars. Now, Power Foods—I I don't know how 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 into health uh, you are, Joanna. You look pretty healthy when I last met you. But um, <laughs> <laughs> sometimes when you go into uh, sports stores and nutrition stores, you see these big, enormous plastic containers full of um, uh, protein powders and, yeah. and, and, and that kind of stuff. Now, that's a real, real niche market in itself. Mm. Okay. And so you've got, so you've got a buyer and a seller here. So freedom of the bakery, power Mm. are the, um, are the, the proteins and nutrients, but Mm. but look at what freedom can achieve by buying power. Mm. Okay. So first of all, Freedom can utilize power's, uh, powers different uh, channels where they're strong. For example, retail pharmacies and, for example, sports shops, shops and uh, and those kind of things. So, so you're looking at channels, first of all. Then power can utilize freedom's uh, channels. So, for example, freedom is strong in groceries and supermarkets. Mm. Power can now sell their products in China and Southeast Asia mm. because freedom are there already okay mm. freedom can afford to innovate much much better than they could have got by themselves because they got more dollars and they got more resources behind them because one of the problems that you know the fast moving companies have is they can't necessarily fund innovation mm. and if you don't innovate in this industry you're dead because mm. there's other people that are innovating
0: mm.
1: and then you look at the production side and you say okay well power produced on a fairly small scale relative to Freedom. Freedom have got these uh, enormous uh, blending and uh, packing capabilities. Why not have them do all of their production, etc., through Freedom? So, You can close down, in effect, um, one factory and and gain economies of scale from from another one. Then you can also say, okay, well, Freedom, they're bigger. They've got a larger supply chain. So there's a greater opportunity for cost improvements. They can source ingredients and and all those kind of things that help increase the profitability of something, reduce the costs, create a greater incentive for R&D.
0: All
1: right, so so you can see it's not just power so freedom didn't just buy power because of the profits that power could make in the future it's mm. the overall profits to the business and that's so you've got your synergies there mm. and it becomes a strategic sale
0: mm. and so then obviously power food becomes a lot more valuable to freedom foods than you know some other random buy that doesn't have a strategic reason for the absolutely. purchase absolutely absolutely how does power Go about finding these people that you know will will have a strategic motive, so therefore mm. you know increase this competitive tension for yes. organisations that are willing to pay over and above what the business in and of itself is worth.
1: Well, look, I'm, I'm of course I'm glad you asked that. <laughs>
0: have you led me down this path, Mark? <laughs>
1: <laughs> Absolutely. Look, it, it, it's people who have, it's experts who have the capacity to help facilitate a mutual gain from the whole thing. So typically, with an assignment like this, you would sit down with somebody like myself and you would sit down and you would list, you would create a long list of all the buyers, perhaps globally, that stand most to gain from really, uh, I guess you could call it a merger. Mm. All right, and your a lot of that work even before you actually come to to take it to market. A lot of the work is actually involved in modelling what the benefits and what the financial gains would be to the buyer. Mm. And you can turn around and say, well, sure, you know, my business may only be worth uh, I don't know. For argument's sake, I, I'm, I'm not quoting directly here, but for argument's sake, my business may only be worth ten million dollars, you know, on a, on a four times multiple mm. or something like that. But to you, Mr. Buyer, this business is worth 30 million mm. because of all the improvements that you can make to it and all the improvements that you can make to your existing business. So yeah. the deal then becomes, okay, well, you know, we're worth 10, but you'll give us 30. Let's
0: settle on 20.
1: Yeah. I mean I mean I mean I'm I'm being very, very superficial. Here. I, I, <laughs> oh yeah, and yeah, that's
0: yeah. a very happy story, isn't it? But-, <laughs> well, but we get it. We we see where you're going. Yeah.
1: But that's the way that these things typically work. You sit down and you model the benefits and and the synergies and the like, and you work out who has the most to gain from this. Of mm-hmm. course, there are other factors as well. I mean, it's much much easier to sell to another Australian company than it is to an overseas company, and uh, and you know a hundred other criteria. What are the effects on staff, and you know the, where are the, the, the facilities located, and all the diseconomies. But mm-hmm. I would say, from a you know from a from a perspective of somebody who's involved in fairly modern methods of um, Um, of of approaching and negotiating with buyers and doing financial modeling that this is typically the way things work now.
0: Mm. And I think, you know, I'm a lawyer, we don't deal a lot with modelling, but I, I just, I, I have to admit, I love mm. this world of financial modelling, you know. I think mm. that this is a really important thing to be talking about and maybe we'll come back and we'll do a podcast again in the future specifically talking about, you know, the benefits and, and how you can go about modelling an outcome. Of course, we've had some podcasts in the, in, mm. in the past where we've talked a little bit about that, but I think there's still a lot more to be um, <laughs> to discussed in this area.
1: Yeah. <laughs> uh, absolutely, absolutely. Now, now th- those aren't the the only reasons why people buy businesses. I've been involved in a number of other uh, transactions where there are other uh, motivations uh, at play. But th- but that's a good example of one where there's several motivations all working simultaneously. But I just wanted to introduce a couple of things that I thought were really, really important. Oh, there's another thing as well: earnouts. Gonna, have, I, have I got time to say something about earnouts?
0: Let's talk about earnouts. They're always a very topical piece. Let's let's talk about them.
1: All right. If you ask, well, first of all, statistically, I would say that between thirty and forty percent of all deals have a significant part related to an earnout, right. and that earnout isn't just the owner staying there for 6 months or a year or anything like that it's much much more difficult than that it's a, it's a relationship between the actual final payout and the profitability or the revenue or the growth or the number of customers, et cetera, that uh, are achieved in that transition period, which could be one, two, even three years.
0: Mm. So, we're not talking here about deferred payments where we no. have an upfront, a great amount, but here you're talking about earnouts. Earnouts. And what was that statistic again? 40%. Between 30 and 40%. 30 to 40%. It's, percent it, it's in mid market.
1: In mid-market, it's actually yep. very, very difficult to get accurate figures for this because because most people wouldn't brag on a press release that there was an earnout component. Yeah. But that would be my estimate. We can uh, track it with public companies, but not necessarily with private. But we're finding now that a good many private businesses uh, on the buy side are going for earnouts. And when I'm on the buy side, I will always urge. Uh, an earnout just to keep the just to keep the uh, the seller motivated.
0: Yeah, yeah, and and uh, and obviously, then you're talking though about sellers who want to stay on with the business for an extended mm. period of time. Then yeah, but that also then suggests well, if we agree that this is going to that this occurs in 40 30 to 40 percent of transactions mm. then if you're open to the concept of an earnout which some people aren't um, mm. but if you are open to it then you you potentially have either a larger pool of buyers or or a absolutely a, a, you know a, the potential of pushing a higher sale price mm. but it also means you probably need to start emotionally preparing and, and preparing your business for a sale maybe earlier than your original anticipated exit date because yes. you're going to have to stick for a while.
1: Absolutely. Totally agree with you there. Are you are you fi- are you finding that typically with your clients that they're prepared to sort of make that adjustment?
0: Yeah, look, I think that clients fall into two camps. There's clients who are very scared of mm-hmm. the concept of an earnout. And even if it is likely to drive a higher price, yeah. they're just too too scared because you know, there's a lot of scary stories around the traps of yes. earnouts going wrong. Yes. And and there's a lot of complicated components that work with developing a earn out, particularly in relation to the control mm. that a seller has. Because there's always totally this agree. issue that between buyer and seller in relation to who's going to hold the control, obviously a buyer wants yes. to hold it once they're yes. in, but that that can impact the ability of a seller in many ways to to impact the the elements that will lead to the earn out. So this is where issues arise and, and it can get a bit more emotional, I guess, for for sellers who just totally. want to know they've got a dollar value.
1: <laughs> totally. Totally agree with you and I I think that's probably it. you could have that as a podcast just in itself the whole the whole issue of the both the rational and emotional uh, aspects relating to an earnout. Yeah. But 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 the fact of the matter is if you're valuing your business this is the seller based on the future potential earnings of the business and you have forecasted that the future potential in uh, the uh, future potential earnings of the business are going to increase as hmm. distinct from stay stable, then you're almost duty and responsibility bound to stay there and make sure that it happens. Yeah. Oh, and one, oh, one more thing as well. Have the seller or work with the seller to negotiate an earnout that is actually higher than the agreed value of the business, yep. if the agreed objectives are actually uh, are, are, are actually achieved as
0: well. And I why think, not have a that goes the, key. the other way? Exactly. Mm. Yes, absolutely. That's that's a really good point. You know, and and that can be a way to um, overcome some of those emotional you, you know concerns.
1: Yes, absolutely.
0: Dollars can help to drive emotion in a different way. <laughs> Absol- <laughs> but look, hey, if you've if you've done your
1: homework well, when you've Manage the business, you've made sure, hopefully, that the business isn't dependent on you in the first place. And there's been many uh, earnouts that I've been involved in where the owner has said, Yeah, that's fine, we're happy to have the earnout, but I really trust my staff and we've got systems in place. I'm still only going to come in two days a week.
0: Yeah, right. Well, thank you, Mark, for coming along. It was so good to have you here and to um, discuss and debate some of these areas. <laughs> been fun for me fabulous
1: i love talking about this stuff (laughs) yeah
0: (laughs) well look we'll have to we'll have you back in another episode and we we might delve further into the concept of earnouts maybe we'll talk a bit more about um this book that's in process at the moment and when you're ready to release that maybe you can give us a little overview on on a podcast a um on one of our shows about what you've covered in in the book Love to. Excellent. Okay, well, thanks, Mark.
1: Thank you, Joanna.
0: Good. Okay, that's a wrap. Well, that's it for part one of this two-part series with Mark Ostron from Strategic Transactions. In this episode, we talked about the trends in mid-market M&A that are tracked and reported in his publication named Australian M&A Review. If you'd like to get a copy of the Australian M&A Review, then head over to the website of Strategic Transactions at strategictransactions.com.au and there you'll be able to get in contact with Mark or his team and get yourself a copy so as a bit of a recap, in this episode, we talked about lots of emerging trends and we also talked in more detail about the benefit for sellers in being primed for the possibility of an acquisition by an offshore buyer. We talked about understanding the motivations of buyers and we also talked about earnouts. Now, from a legal perspective, there's a lot for businesses to be aware of if they're considering an earnout. If you'd like to hear more about earnouts, then maybe head over to episode 12 of The Deal Room where I chat about the legal considerations of earnouts with Liz Lee who heads up our MA division at Aspect Legal. There we talk further about earnouts and in future episodes we'll also be talking further about earnouts because as discussed with Mark in this podcast, earnouts can provide a lot of upside for both buyers and sellers if they're done right. But done poorly, they can cause pain for both parties. So it's about getting your ducks in line correctly and having the right legal and contractual underpinnings to ensure that they work the way they're meant to. Well, that's a wrap. If you'd like to get a copy of the notes from this podcast or any contact details that we've discussed, head over to our website at thedealroompodcast.com where you'll be able to download a transcript of this podcast episode if you want to read it in more detail. You can also access the podcast notes by going to our website at aspectlegal.com dot com dot au, which is also where you can contact our lawyers at Aspect Legal if you or your clients would like to discuss any legal aspects of sales or acquisitions. Now don't forget to listen in to the second part of this two-part series with Mark Ostron, where we close out this series by going through Mark's checklist of considerations that a business ought to be thinking about in advance before going into market. We also identify some threats in the MA space, but of course, we sign off in a positive note by leaving you, our listeners, with some actionable tips, whether you're an accountant, a broker, or a business owner gearing for purchase or sale into the future. So thanks again for listening in. You've been listening to Joanna Oki and The Deal Room Podcast, brought to you by the commercial legal firm Aspect Legal. See you next time. Ladies and gentlemen, Ladies and gentlemen. that will conclude this evening's entertainment.